I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moore! Robbie Robbie Weekly. Little reverse pass. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in Cork as always at this point. And I'm joined as always by Murray Kinsella of the 42.e. How are things there, Murray? Yeah, all good. I'm slightly perturbed uh, this morning because there's someone downstairs drilling for the last two hours. So I apologise if people can hear that maybe in the background a couple of times during the pod. I presume they're nearly finished whatever job they're doing. Uh, But that aside, really good. How are you, Gav? I'm super, thanks. I thought you were multitasking, to be totally honest. Is there no end to this man's talents to be podcasting and drilling simultaneously? Uh, Hope all Leinster fans have been having a great week and the Pro 14 success of last weekend hasn't been taken for granted because what a run it was, what a season it has been for Leinster so far. We're going to delve into that final in a moment with Bernard Jackman, who also joins us. How are things there, Bernard? All good, man. All good. Looking forward to chatting. Absolutely. We're also going to get into, naturally enough, the Champions Cup quarterfinals. We're going to talk about identity, which is not exactly everybody's favourite topic, particularly Monster fans, I think, sometimes. But this time it was after a, a very interesting interview that Dan McFarlane did with our own Murray. We might get stuck into that in a while. We're also going to look at the breakdown as well. We've got an email to address there. So we will swing back around towards that at the end of the show um to start off with lads i'll start with yourself bernard um pro 14 final you were the closest of the two of you in terms of margins you kind of felt as though leinster would do it by 10 or 12 it's a little bit more resounding than that in the end no surprises but what impressed you about leinster's performance what impressed you about ulster what were your impressions of the game to begin with um look at all ulster started brightly um they took it to leinster they tried to offload the um, in contact, um, they particularly off turnovers. They they were really lively, and, and you know the, their first try was was credit to to that ambition um, and their skill set. Um, having said that, probably Leinster needed our Ulster probably needed four things to go wrong from from a Leinster defensive point of view, or for them to execute you know four really difficult things to to trouble them. And um, that was really the only moment the match. I thought Leinster were. Were under pressure, um, and defensively they, they managed to to handle um, Ulster pretty comfortably, and particularly in the second half when I thought Ulster got fatigued, um, then it became very dominant. And I think they took the way they're playing at the moment. It's actually they're draining opposition's legs. They're they're mentally breaking them uh, just but how kind of clinical they are and, and how few errors they make and. Um, it's testament to their skill set and their organisation that week in, week out, they can put in these performances which are just incredibly high level and don't really give teams a, a sniff. And um, and even just small moments like Ulster score a great try to go 5-0 up and you always felt they needed to probably go two scores up um, to really take Leinster out of their stride and make them chase the game. And pretty quickly, you know, Leinster go back up. And James Lowe does incredibly well. I mean... He's getting thrown into touch and, and Ulster would have survived the first real onslaught and he managed to, to throw the ball off an Ulster player. So Leinster get the line out um, and get back-to-back attacking sets and it finishes with James Lowe scoring um, in the other corner. And, you know, Billy Burns missed a conversion for Hume's uh, try and it's only 5-0 and then 
you know, from the touchline, Ross Byrne nails it and Leinster 7-5 up. And it's just, it's just that real, being really clinical. And, and, and then Ulster, like, they small, small moments early in the game. I mean, they kick two kickoffs onto Devon Toner's head. He doesn't even have to move for them. So, um, you know, in some ways you could say the strategy was to target Dev and, and you know, that would be a great boost if, if they can get some return there. But, like, the kick onto him, onto him, don't make a move. He's highly unlikely to to drop it. And from from both those kickoffs, they give away penalties directly, which, again, gives Leinster an opportunity. Whereas you don't ever see Leinster backing up errors with errors. Um, you know, if they can see the try or score, you're pretty sure the next five or six moments are, are going to be positive for them. Whereas, unfortunately... For Ulster and Munster, who are probably the two nearest to them at the moment, they just have these. They can't back up really positive moments uh, for for a big enough number to to challenge someone like Leinster. So um, yeah, look, Leinster deserve massive credit. They have been the best team by far in the league, and and you know post lockdown, they came back just well. I'm not saying they're just as strong, but they're. They're definitely stronger than everyone else in, in in that competition. They certainly are. We touched upon it as well last week, Murray. That. Um, Ulster would have to be perfect in every area of their own game to have a chance and even at that they probably would have been relying on Leinster to be subpar in a couple of uh, their own facets of their game now Leinster probably weren't uh, at 100% there were definitely areas like the line out which we can get into where they didn't fire in all cylinders but Ulster weren't perfect and it's actually a huge amount to ask of a team for them to be perfect <laughs> teams rarely are so it's not even necessarily a criticism of Ulster but more so a reality of, of where the two teams are and where Leinster are versus the rest of the provinces what firstly what were your your general impressions of the game before we get into the kind of specific areas of it yeah it was a reality check in a way for Ulster in terms of where you have to get to to compete with this Leinster team they clearly struggle against an oppressive kind of suffocating defensive line from Leinster after that early James Hume try it was just dominance in in most collisions from Leinster they totally won the gain line on both sides of the ball really when they carried as well they they made greater headway I think they'll be very frustrated in this particular game their their kind of conversion rate in the 22 did drop down a bit but they put themselves in good positions and they completely shut Ulster down to the extent that Ulster then became I suppose there was either poor decision making or poor execution when they got a little window of opportunity. You talk about perfection against Leinster, you get a few windows of chances, and and they took it for the human where Caelan Doris is very wide on the defensive edge, and and they're trying to get that width in their in their defensive line. But Hume is out the back of Alan O'Connor and and breaks through that space and finishes really well. There was one before half time though where. Billy Burns, I don't know if you maybe remember, where he passes very low to Hume and Hume knocks on. And and there is a bit of an, a window on the right-hand side there where they have the Ulster back three kind of loaded in the 15-metre channel. Um, and maybe it's only a one-on-one, but it's a, it's a potential chance. In the second half, there were a couple of them as well. But when you're in the middle of a, a series of phases where you're getting pushed back and battered back by really good double tackles from Leinster, the variety of techniques they use in terms of chopping low or, or getting a good shot on on the upper body it's very hard to to look outside you at times and and the pressure that the first receiver was under consistently from the likes of josh van der fleer as well just made them maybe slip back into their shells a little bit but i think ulster reflecting on the the theme of the game overall will realize that they need to be more 
competitive around that gain line. Um, they've obviously got some dynamic ball carriers, but probably the variety of how they attack and and how they use those ball carriers instead of just being maybe slightly one out as they as they got against that really good defense so yeah they didn't get close to the perfection that was required and and Leinster as Bernard says like Roby's a game of fine margins the winning margin was very big but if you go in between every if you go between every five minute block or three minute block of the game Leinster came out on the right side of those margins and, and applied that right kind of pressure so they definitely have areas that they'll be looking to improve they they don't feel they've got close to what they can deliver as you mentioned the line out there was really scrappy and, and that's been a kind of an, an issue really since they restarted their discipline I think it was 10 penalties the last day but that's been really up and down and, and some frustrations there as well as the attacking flow like you don't have to obviously play through multi-phases to win rugby that's that's not the game really but I think they'll want to get more flow on, on their attack to to maybe show some of the shape and some of the phase play um weapons they've got as well um aerial game again there was wobbles jacob stockdale had some real successes under matthewson's box kicking and i think maybe ulster will look at having a bit more variety in, in their kicking game as well i'm not saying they should have box kicked more because um we saw at munster that, that that didn't work the weekend before but maybe with their attacking kicking game it could have been more prominent or, or probed or, or asked more questions um so leinster have lots for themselves to focus on and fix up and and hope to get better at but yeah, you can't dispute that they were dominant winners in, in a final. Mm. We'll get stuck into the Leinster thing in a moment as we move towards or look towards Saracens as well. Uh, and certainly we'll be looking at Ulster at Toulouse also. But just to kind of round off Ulster's performance in this game for starters, Bernard Murray alludes to it there, the fact that they probably need to work on bringing some of their uh, most effective ball carriers into play that a little bit more and what we saw again from them which we knew already was that in sort of unstructured play uh, broken field running and, and so on they did have their moments it's probably where the try came from and it does seem to be the only area in which a team can make inroads against Leinster at the moment I think like is there a means of bereaving a game of structure like that might sound like a stupid question probably because it is one but can you make a game less structured or are you just dependent on the elements and what actually transpires in a game in order for a ball to bounce here and there and to capitalize upon it i think you can make well how you make it less structured is is by having really good variety um and in actual fact what leinster are are trying to do is is make it more unstructured because they feel they also have weapons um, and can thrive in that kind of environment, but it'll be very much their choice. So they're basically doing things to make the opposition force an error or overplay, and that will give them unstructured opportunities. So the problem is other teams aren't, other teams are quite comfortable winning more games than they lose by playing structured rugby. So Munster, for example, Ulster, they're able to get the, the road to them for them getting to knockout rugby is to basically back their game plan. And again, unfortunately, when they come up against a team like Leinster who are better at that type of game than, than they are um, and just don't give them an, an inch, uh, they're, they're not fluid enough. So, And I think this is a big issue for, for the teams. In the Pro 14, look, at we're talking Leinster up. They've been phenomenal this year. But the reality is to really warrant that you know the the the, the way we're talking about them and 
you know, to be talking about a legacy team, etc. They have to go and win Europe now, and that's going to be a different challenge because Saracens, Claremont, Racing, Toulouse are a different proposition. But for the Pro 14 teams, the problem for them is, I think, that lack of competition. So, you know, when Ulster train on a Tuesday, first against seconds, they're on the front foot 80% of the time. When Munster train against Munster seconds, they're on the front foot 80% of the time. So you're just comfortable and everything you do or most things you do works well. Whereas, you know, Leinster, in fairness, uh, and sorry, Ulster and Munster can only really learn by playing Leinster in the Pro 14. Um, whereas I think Leinster can learn on a Tuesday or Thursday or a Wednesday, well, it depends on how they do their week. Um, and I think that's been, that's massive for them. We saw Leinster's second string play a very strong Ulster side a couple of weeks ago and, you know, win the game. And, and that's the that's the challenge. So the, the players, and you looked at the Ulster players' body language the last 30 minutes against Leinster. You looked at the Munster players' body language the last 30 minutes. Um, their energy was gone. And, and some of that was physical and some of it's mental. But it's because they're not used to that level of, of accuracy or, or, or physicality or, um, or clinical... Uh, Clinical, high levels of being clinical. Um, and I think that's that's the scary thing. Whereas now Leinster are going to go and play. Obviously, Ulster go to Toulouse, and that's obviously another learning curve. But probably they're going to lose that. Whereas there's a chance Leinster will get three more games against quality opposition and, you know, fine-tune their game plan um, even more. And that's, that's, that's the worrying thing. And I think Ulster and Munster over the last two weeks will have left Aviva frustrated and scared that they've got further behind rather than closer to them. I think every coach and every player will accept, okay, we're not where we need to be today, but as long as we're getting closer, I think that's that's a really good mindset to have and, and, and belief. But when you get that shock to your system and you feel we're actually getting further away, it kind of puts everything in doubt. And, and from a Leinster point of view, I mean, that's brilliant for them because, you know, you're actually... You're, you're, you're kind of leaving a mark on your opposition as well, which lasts longer than the game itself, which is rare to get in sport. But I think a lot of championship, championship teams and, and champions in other individual sports had that ability to do that. Hmm. We're going to get stuck into that as well in a, a bit more detail in a while when we get into things like identity. It's certainly a very interesting topic. It's going to piss a lot of people off, but it's also, I think, incredibly worthwhile uh, Bernard, to stick with yourself, as we look ahead to Saracens then, areas of improvement for Leinster. Let's start with the line-out. It was your area of expertise back in the day. I think it was four of them were lost at the weekend. Where did that go wrong for you? How did they kind of put it right during the week? To be honest, it just looked like they weren't comfortable with their uh, with their calling system or, or, or their drill. And in fairness, Kelleher, I think there was only one... There was one not one not straight. He got away with it actually. Then ended up going to the back and and the referee braced out a goal. But there was a lot of mis miscommunication, mistiming. And the only thing I can think about is that maybe it was just James Ryan just getting back up to speed. And one one player a little bit off or unsure of the of the of the triggers, um, you know, can can give you a, a first half like that. The second half they settled down. I think it'll definitely be better for it. I mean. The basics and fundamentals of Leinster's lineout are, are very strong. Obviously, um, you know Devon. If if things go messy, Devon can call on himself and win it. You know, nine times out of ten, um, Doris is a good option. Conan's a decent option, and James Ryan's a good option. And you know they 
they have a lot real cohesion and consistency of of, of performing that area. There's been a few little blips since lockdown, but I don't think it's an area that they will get too stressed about. And they need to just stay calm. I mean, you know, we know Saracens uh, have a have a really good defensive line out. Um, they'll st- well, normally they you know they make a lot of noise and put pressure on the referee to get in and, and get after your hooker, etc. Obviously, it's going to be a little bit different this weekend with just 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 uh, the teams there. But the most important thing is that Kelleher and whoever the lineup caller just stay relaxed and calm. And I think an extra week's training uh, for James Ryan would have would have done a lot to sort it out. Murray, we hear often after a team has had a performance in the lineup like that of the need to simplify it. Can you simplify what Leinster are doing and get away with it against Saracens or is Saracens' line-out defence too sophisticated for you to go in with too simple a game plan, if that makes sense? Yeah, I don't think Leinster will be making massive changes to their the way they structure their line-out. Certainly you can't do that in the space of a week. They may simplify in terms of the calling and the menu and, and narrow it down slightly more. Um, and Devin Tone is really good at that. He's a very calm operator and, and that's why he's brought back in for this final. Um, it was I totally agree with Bernard. Like there was, It wasn't just on Ronan Keller, certainly. And, and there was one prime example where James Ryan clearly misses the call and he's kind of in Devin Toner's way. There was another one where Josh van der Fleer, I think, is a bit slow to get in from receiver to lift. Um, and it kind of just was infectious. The, the the amazing thing is, like, let's imagine what it would have been like at halftime in in the final if Leinster's lineout had been firing. They missed a ten meter chance after that really good Gary Ringrose grubber where Ulster have to scramble and exit, and that's one that you really associate with Leinster taking that chance. There were a couple around halfway as well where it, it denied them the chance to get into that attacking flow maybe that we've spoken about and, and gave Ulster chances back in the Leinster half. So I think it would have been an even more dominant margin if they had had that firing I don't think they will be panicking this week obviously there's a threat coming Maro Toje obviously is, is really effective in this area he's an absolute pest in terms of literally just screaming over your calls and waving his arms and closing the gap and pushing the limit of the law um, to, to the very um, yeah right to the limit but Leinster will have obviously been pointing that out in, in their pre-match stuff with the referee and sending clips etc things like that 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 happen regularly um and listen there's talk of a change with with sean cronin coming in and hooker potentially which would add another layer of intrigue to it but i think leinster have shown in the past that they've bounced back from wobbles in this area and in others and been really strong in their mindset that's that's the strength of this team they don't they don't wobble too easily um, and for me, those things are are fixable without making a, a drastic change to the to the system. Yeah, just on that, Murray, like the one you're talking about, where Josh Van der Fleer um, is slightly late. I mean, that was a risky call. So the 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 law on that is Josh was was the plus one, yeah. so he was the scrum half. He can't actually go into the line out. The ball's left the hooker's um, hands, so you know the the timing has to be absolutely perfect and. Ronan has a has quite a flat throw, so that he, you know, there's other guys who can put more shape on it, which gives the plus one more time to get in. And he's just he's just half a second off. But probably when they review that game with or review that lineup uh, performance with Rob McBride, you know, that's one that's one you kind of call when you're you're at a hundred percent and you're really you're really fluid in your in your in your drill and your routine. So I think there's areas that they can they can pick out as well in terms of shot selection, which are less high risk and, and just give Lencer the ball. And if Lencer have the ball, um, you know, that's, that's more than half the battle because they're, they're pretty good with it. Yeah, their strike plays have been brilliant. That's been a, another 
area of strength over the last few weeks. We've seen lovely variety in how they attack, even off scrum as well, using James Lowe to batter his way through and then a couple of minutes later to pass out the back and, and it's, it's Byrne who offloads to Ring Rose for a nice break into the 22. That Ring Rose kick off, off a left-hand line out where Van der Fleer passes to Gibson Park going across 15 metre. They do have so much variety in their playbook and I think it's an area of strength in their attack that we probably don't focus on as much. Um, but they've been brilliant in that area. So if they fix that up, it goes a massive way towards winning against Saris. Murray, they've been effective in their strike plays, as you say. In phase play, would it be fair to say their fluidity hasn't been quite there uh, over the course of the last three weeks? Do you feel as though they might actually be holding things back or is it just a case of trying to get back up to speed after a very long time of not playing together? There's probably a bit of both. They've, they've used a couple of plays over the last couple of weekends consecutively where you think, okay, maybe they're actually just using that one again so they're not uh, wasting a play ahead of the Saris game. But really, a lot of it has been around the breakdown. They've had a, a couple of issues there. You think of many positions in the 22 where they've had a maybe a side entry or, or someone coming off their feet and, and just letting off that pressure. They've been surprisingly the ones who, who maybe struggled with the refocus around the, the breakdown they've given away a lot of attacking breakdown penalties and we'll come back to this as you said at, at the end of the show just in a more general terms but if they can nail that detail everything flows that much better off it when they get in into that um fluidity you're talking about there it's just really irresistible isn't it at times because they've got so many powerful ball carriers um who have just explosive strength but also they've all got good footwork they've all got decent fends they use a bit of subtlety around playing at the back of a decoy line or the nine scooting off and interesting defenders. There's really good animation out the back always from the, the playmakers as well. Um, and then good decision-making close to the line always. So they've got a whole variety of weapons and, and definitely that fluidity is something that can improve and certainly something they will have focused on. A lot of it for me is probably around that accuracy at the breakdown um, and fixing that up. Just on just final word on Leinster. Um... Um, Murray mentioned uh, their their strike plays. Um, apparently, Felipe Contepone's had a you know he's having a real influence on it now. He's brought it to another level. Um, you know, obviously, Short has to sign off on everything, but and he's in charge of attacking D and and, and how they manage the game. But um, by all accounts, Felipe is is a very good coach in his in his own right and is putting his stamp on things. And I think that's been. The area, obviously, we know that they're kicking a lot more um, post lockdown, but I think that their their strike plays off scrum and lineouts have looked to be at a, another level up, and, and maybe somebody who's obviously high profile, but mainly as a player, and I think as a coach, he's he's starting to have a big influence. Interesting. Uh, there'll be people as well, Birch, sticking with yourself, who haven't seen much of Saracens since last season's Champions Cup final. I'm. I'll confess to being one of them because I, I find the Premiership a, a tough watch most of the time, particularly post-lockdown. We know they're going to be missing Owen Farrell, obviously, next weekend. But what can we expect from them? Do they differ much from what we saw of them sort of last May, June time? And what kind of a game are you expecting this weekend? They deserve massive credit. Um, one, for the, the squad they've managed to keep together. Um, obviously, they've lost some, some you know, big names, uh, someone on permanent deals elsewhere and someone loan deals with a view to going back in a, in a year's time. But I think their first choice 15 um, are, are still very strong. And, and I've been watching a lot of their games and probably the, the strongest line they put up was probably against London Irish 
um, a few weeks ago, and, and you know they had Jamie George, Vincent Kosh, Mario Tozio, Michael Rhodes, Billy Winopola, Jackson Ray, uh, Brad Barrett, Elliot Daly, you know Sean Maitland, Alex Good. Um, it's probably their bench is, is where they don't have the depth that they had before. But having said that, they you know they probably have the best academy in England for the last seven or eight years, and I've been really impressed with some of those youngsters and. They sent a weekend team to to Bristol. Uh, or sorry, they sent a weekend team at, out of the weekend against Exeter, and you know got a got a great win, forty seventeen. And um, they're playing with huge energy, and, and that was always a big part of of their, of their kind of uh, makeup was just basically working incredibly hard for each other and and creating energy on the field. And um, I think that they are coming to Dublin. You know they've been they've performed admirably in a competition that they have nothing to play for, uh, but you can be sure that this has been their target all preseason. And this bunch of players would get an incredible kick out of being able to to do something special in Europe the year you get relegated. How difficult is it um, for a coaching staff to get players up to speed for a European Cup quarter final against the best team in Europe on paper? after so long a period of time in which you've had nothing to play for. Like, I feel as though we can talk about it and they can talk about it. Oh, look, we're absolutely buzzing in training. Finally, there's something on the line. But in practice, surely it's difficult for uh, in a one-off after such a long period of time. Or, or am I making it sound too difficult? No, I think these players, just sorry, I think these players, when you look at the experience they have in the international game, in the club game, they will absolutely relish this. They know that this is their last big game at club level for probably, you know, definitely 12 months or 11 months. So, um, like, they're going to be facing into going to Cornish Pirates and, um, you know, other parts of uh, Nottingham and places like that over the next um, the next 11 months. Now they're coming to the Viva to play the Pro 14 champions, the team they beat last year in a, in a European Cup final with a, with a chance to, you know, get themselves into a semi-final and, and, and go and win a, a trophy with everything that's happened to them. I think they will be absolutely buzzing. And also, their form is good. You know, their form has been very, very competitive. Um, you know, and, and realistically, if they hadn't been compulsorily relegated, they would have stayed up. They, they got enough points, even with the reduction, um, to, to stay up. And, and, you know, other teams are quite lucky that, obviously, that, they weren't just punished with the with the points reduction. So they're they're coming here. Um, they have a very good team. Um, they've got very good coaches. They've a very good game plan, and they are a, a threat to Leinster because they have the cap- capacity to stand up to them in terms of power. And Leinster don't face that. I said no. Leinster's training sessions will be competitive, but it's a different animal having Mako and, and Jamie George and Vincent Kosh and Billy Bunapola and Mario Toje. Um, you know, at, up, up front than it is even with the depth Lenser have. Murray, what are your thoughts? Do you agree with Bernard? Yeah, I, find, I do find it hard to look past, I suppose, just how much they have lost. You reflect on the 2018-19 final, Saracens beating Leinster 2010 in a, a brilliant game and one that still rankles with Leinster. And you look at the players gone since then, Liam Williams, Lizovsky, Owen Farrell, obviously, as you mentioned, Ben Spencer's gone, Lamasatelli, Skelton, Cruz, and a whole load of the bench players like Asikwe, Tompkins, Shock Berger even was there at that stage, as well as guys who probably would have filled those holes in, in Ben Earl, Max Malins, good players like that. They can still definitely feel a, a strong 15, as Bernard's outlined there, with international quality, with some world-class players. 
but they are certainly a diminished force compared to what they were and Owen Farrell missing is obviously a, a gigantic loss Alex Goode who looks like he's going to play 10 he's the fullback usually he's a class act and he's he's stepped in at 10 before it was the 2018-19 season actually he played the quarterfinal against Glasgow and did well there he played against Bristol a few weeks ago as well so he's got a bit of recent experience and he is a, a classy creative player but they're going to miss Farrell's class and his drive particularly because this was a fixture we just know he was relishing it and, and planning for it in the background with McCall all along so it is hard to kind of look past that Leinster in, in contrast have lost to Sean O'Brien and Jack McGrath I think came off the bench in, in that final but it was a performance that we know now deeply deeply frustrated obviously the result was disappointing but deeply frustrated Stuart Lancaster and there was probably a sense from Leinster that they didn't fire the shots that they had planned to in that game. So that's been simmering away for them in the background. Saracens have been plotting and preparing for this, but so have, so have Leinster. I know they've been focusing and giving respect to the Pro 14 opposition, but I guarantee in the background they've been doing a lot of planning and preparing ahead for this and, and tweaking to their game plan. And things like the attacking, kicking game improvement we've seen, I think is a result of learning from the defeat in that in that final to Saracens. When... That aggressive Sari's high defensive line up on the edge just smothered them and, and they didn't really test it in the way they would have hoped to by varying their game, by maybe kicking and, and manipulating and shaping the backfield and, and easing off some of that line speed. There were chances maybe to push an extra pass on occasion and they didn't do it. And even at that, they were unbelievably close. You think of before half time when they didn't kick the ball off the field, uh, infamously, I suppose. Billy Vunapola gathers their box kick from, from Luke McGrath and Rob Carney doesn't roll away Leinster were leading 10-3 at that stage and they go in 10-all and then just after half time Gary Ringrose really uncharacteristically missing the chance with a three-man overlap inside the 22 for Sarri so again even on that level they'll reflect on frustrations at not taking their chances so that is the fascinating dynamic Sarri's have been simmering away in the background for what eight nine months really um, focusing on retaining their their European title before they bow out for a season but so too have Leinster they've been sitting on those frustrations and, and trying to learn from it as well and, and it's fascinating in that sense because like McCall, Mark McCall and his coaching team are extremely astute tactically as well and, and I'm fascinated to see where they perceive the weaknesses in Leinster how they set it up and, and what game plan they employ because it is hard to pick out weaknesses in, in this Leinster team and, and as we've seen the last few weeks other coaching staffs have struggled so um, really fascinated to see what Saris produce I'm going to ask you for your predictions now gents while we're talking about the game so Bernard which way do you see it going give us a margin as well if you yeah don't I think Leinster Leinster win 25-18 ooh nice one score game Murray you might feel as though it's a little bit more comprehensive for Leinster based on what you were saying there I I had eight point margin in my head, so Birch is seven, does he? I've eight. Um, yeah, I do. I do think Leinster will have too much. I think it's really important for them to be the front runners, get out in, in front, um, and then their bench impact is going to be superior for me. I think that'll be a, a big factor in the game, and if they're leading, I think they'll be able to to, to finish out with that margin. Well, you've certainly wet my appetite for that one. Let's chat about Ulster and Toulouse then before we go on to other matters. And Bernard, you said earlier on they're probably going to lose that game. It's, I think, a fair assessment. It's not in any way disrespectful to suggest any team really has a, a fairly large chance of going down to Toulouse and getting beaten in a European quarterfinal or otherwise. But I suppose to kind of flip it on its head a little bit, what do Ulster do that could trouble Toulouse this weekend? Like, what kind of a, a game plan 
game plan can they put together in order to win the game? Because certainly that's what they'll be going down there to do, regardless of what we think is possible. Yeah, it's actually the opposite of what they tried to do against Leinster, where they tried to, um, I suppose, liven it up, be, be quite chaotic, um, take chances. I think if you do that against Toulouse, they're in their element, so they probably need to play a really structured um, type game. And we saw, I don't, most of us would have seen um, Claremont Toulouse a couple of weeks ago, first game back, where Toulouse ended up with two, two red cards and you know played some brilliant rugby. But Claremont played into their hands by by playing that chaotic style as well. When you know, obviously, with a numerical advantage, they would have been just better off playing a, a set piece game. Um, and that's what I think Ulster will will. Will have to do. They'll have to frustrate them, uh, be very clinical. You know, use their kicking game really wisely, but kick to contest um, and make the the Toulouse forwards go back to, to come back forward again. And um, because if you kick long to them, I mean, their their counter attacking game is is phenomenal, and, and their skill set from one to to twenty three is is scary, really. You know, and, and um, I just can't see Ulster going there in the right frame of mind. I mean, bar 20 minutes against Edinburgh when, when you think back on it, Edinburgh really folded, you know, even though Ulster did up it and, and you know, they were smart tactically and they got some energy. Uh, I mean, you know, Richard Cockrell will still be trying to work out how they let them get back into the game. And so I, I just don't think Ulster are in great shape physically, um, you know, since, since they came back. And I think that uh, any confidence that they got from that 20 minutes against Edinburgh um, was blown away again by, by the manner of the weekend. And their way of form was really poor. Um, yeah, so I just, I just can't, I can't see it. And I think Ulster are, are aside in, in making progress. Um, and I really like the coaching staff there. And, and I think they're probably you know, one or two big physical ball carriers away from being a, a decent side. But until they get those... Um, I can't see them troubling teams at this this stage in in Europe. Murray, can you make a case for Ulster troubling Toulouse, please? No, I can't. <laughs> uh, no, no. Like Bernard's outlined some of the things there that they will have to do well, and mentally as well to get on top of it. Dan McFarland, as always, was honest in his press update this week when he said it. It took forty eight hours to get over that real grief I suppose of losing a final and getting to that occasion and not being satisfied with what they delivered um, and that's something that they'll have to flush out very quickly in, in the next couple of days because they're in for a bit of an onslaught as Bernard mentions there's so many talented attacking players in this team you think of DuPont who's probably one of the best if not the best scrum half in the world and Entomac who's who's got a maturity beyond his year years in the halfbacks Jez and Colby was really sharp last weekend against La Rochelle. He scored two tries, kick-started a brilliant try right at the end that featured some classic Toulouse offloading. Um, and then they also had a bit of a pragmatism almost because Thomas Ramos kicked six penalties. They took their points when they were available and maybe a bit of a nod to, to European competition in that sense as well. They have an edge as well. You think of Pete Aki, the, the former Connacht centre. He's been strong for them defensively in midfield. And up front, Jerome Kano, who was in the second row actually last weekend. Femwina, Rory Arnold, experienced um, forwards who, who have that bit of edge. So they've got all the tools for me. They do have a, a couple of defensive worries. I think Hugo Mola, the, the boss, was talking about it today. Obviously conceding 55 points in two, two games, it's not great. But... Um, They've been really competitive in Europe again for, for the last couple of seasons. It's been extremely welcome. 
and I know they finished up last season's top 14 it was curtailed short um, and they were down in seventh but they were just a couple of points really off the the top four the top three so they've been resurgent in the last couple of years and the albeit the home advantage is reduced they will have 5,000 supporters there on Sunday um, and that's another little boost for them as well so I do find it difficult to see Ulster winning I, I think <laughs> if they need a perfection last weekend they'll probably need it again and and as we know that's a, a very hard thing to attain uh, on the rugby pitch so um, not to be too um, pessimistic about it I do think it could be fun game as well like Ulster have the ability to open up and I think Byrne is right in how they should approach it but if they do play at a bit of tempo as well we know they're skillful and capable as well and and for, from a neutral point of view, you'd, you'd almost love it to open up in that way and, and a, a couple of fireworks on either side. That would be a, a lot of fun. Prediction for that one. So, Murray, starting with yourself and, and include a margin, please. Oh, to lose by 10 plus. Okay. Bernard, would you go along with that? Yeah, I think maybe even a bit more. I think maybe, maybe 16, 17. Okay, fair, fair, fair. Let's uh, hope they prove you wrong anyway. Are you waiting too long for your rugby podcasts? Hi folks, Gavin Casey here, and that wasn't actually me. But tell me this, what are you doing with your Monday mornings? Fighting the urge to weep? Well, the 42's Murray Kinsella and internationally acclaimed performance analyst Owen Tulin have a better idea, as they join forces in the early hours of every Monday to produce the most cutting-edge rugby analysis available to the human ear. Rugby Weekly Extra takes you back into every tackle and jackal from the weekend's action in both hemispheres and is available exclusively to the 42 members. So, encumbered by that dreaded back-to-work feeling on a Sunday evening? (laughs) Say no more. Replace it with a back-to-rock feeling. Who wrote this? And join the lads, as well as the members' rugby WhatsApp group, by becoming a member of the 42 at members.the42.ie. Men do not engage in combat for motherhood, the flag, or apple pie. They do not fight for patriotism. They may have volunteered for these reasons, but when their lives are at risk and the incredible stress of close personal violence is immediately at hand, the key truth emerges. Men fight for their friends. So said Major Brendan McBreen, who served in the US Marine Corps for 25 years and so said Dan McFarland when talking to my friend, Murray Kinsella, during the week. <laughs> and now we're all going to talk about it. The issue of identity in rugby. It's a word that raises a lot of backs uh, and yet is so pertinent, I think, at the moment. So, Murray, will you give us a little bit of context uh, to the use of that quote on that interview with Dan for people who've missed it? I'm sure they can go back and read it retrospectively. But just for the sake of the podcast, what were you talking about and what did Dan mean? Yeah, it was in the aforementioned press conference really during the week. It wasn't a one-on-one or anything like that, but I'd kind of read some stuff around Ulster and the number of Leinster players in their squad last week. And it has been a, a kind of topic that's come up and and certainly they've had a good influence from players from outside the province, etc. So I just thought it'd be worth a- asking Dan. And sometimes you, you ask these questions and you don't even expect much of an answer, but... His first kind of words were, I could go on about this for a while, and he kind of launched into it. Um, I suppose his take, as you've alluded to there with that quote, and he actually quoted Napoleon as well. He is a great man for a few words of wisdom from um, people in various different walks of life. He's a very well-read man. Um, But he's basically making the point that 
it's not about where you're from it's about who you're with when it comes down to the heat of the rugby battle that if Ulster can create a bond and a culture off the pitch it doesn't matter where they come from he spoke about his own background obviously born in England um, and has spent the last well much of the last 15 years working in Irish rugby has some family links in Ulster and he said he feels very much part of the fabric there now himself he said guys like Nick Timoney who I suppose moved up to Ulster to be a senior pro rather than with his native Leinster he's got a bond in the province obviously in that way and you, you look at it I suppose people like John Cooney obviously another Leinster guy but he's become the player he felt he could be in Ulster and and that creates a bond as well um it, it's an interesting take on things because the criticism of of Ulster and similar to what we've discussed with Munster I mean it's it's hard to dispute in many ways they don't have as many homegrown players um, I was looking at it. their 43-man senior squad. I think 42% of them were what you class as homegrown, I suppose. Leinster are 85%. Most, Munster were 63 and, and Connacht were just under 40%. So Ulster and, and Connacht kind of straggling behind in, in that sense. But I suppose you'd be almost foolish not to look, um, particularly a, a Leinster player, as um, as a source because they're producing this insane quality and, and depth and, and guys who aren't getting first choice status in Leinster can certainly do a job elsewhere. I suppose the balance is in, in making sure that your own production line is healthy and, and that's the challenge for Ulster. As we've discussed, it's the same for Munster. They've got some talented players there. You look in their academy, guys like Nathan Doak, Aaron Sexton, Tom Stewart, people we haven't seen a lot of before. There is talent there. And it's about backing them aggressively whenever the opportunity comes up. And if there's a selection call to make in the next couple of years between a guy who's come from Ulster in the academy um, and someone else, then you've you got to back that, that Ulster-produced player. Um, but it is fascinating to see how he slants uh, and, and puts the narrative around that the identity piece, I suppose, as you've mentioned there. <laughs> Dan McFarlane can't just say, you know, ah, oh, fuck it, like these lads aren't from Ulster what's the point in even playing? He has to create uh, a message and a cohesion and, and that this is the way they've done it and that's the way he looks at it. It's about who you're with, not where you're from. It was very clever, I have to say, from McFarland. Bernard, here are my thoughts. Like He is actually spot on objectively in what he says, but he's also deliberately taken us off the scent of the real issue at hand uh, within the kind of context of how this issue is, is usually discussed. So... Of course, it doesn't matter to a team where its individual players are from. These are professional athletes. Uh, they could be from anywhere in the world and they'll play for each other and so on. But in a kind of a wider conversation about Irish rugby, it does matter because we're talking about how the game is commercially uh, sold, how it's consumed by fans. And we're talking about a kind of parochial rivalry that we don't want to lose in Irish rugby between the provinces if for example you know the other three provinces outside of Leinster uh, their teams consist of uh, players mainly born in Leinster or a high number of players born in Leinster it might not quite be the same to fans as it used to be um, when most of the players were from their native province so to speak so uh, I don't know, it, it, it's, it feels as though Dan answered the question really, really well, quite craftily, but the conversation is probably slightly different. Yeah, I think um, you know, Dan is, is incredibly well read, as Murray said, and I think you know, when he was doing his coaching course and the module was framing, he probably 
he took the most notes and he's, he's getting uh, you know, <laughs> framing, framing the story and, and I think look I think what he dwelled on um, and I, I agree with him completely about you know just because you have 100% of your players from a certain city or town or, or, or province that's not going to make, make you win uh, necessarily and, but I think what he jumped on was what city people were born in I don't think it's that I, I, I genuinely don't think it's that I think if you look at the, you know, a lot of the players up there. It wasn't just where they were born; it's where they they learned their rugby and where they, you know, their development came. So, for like Maddig and Marty Moore, um, Jordy Murphy, for example, like they've they've learned their rugby in Leinster. Um, and again, that's fine. I think I think um, you know diversity and having having different points of view is really good as well. And like no one would knock the impact Sean Cronin's had in in Leinster. And obviously, a Munster man via Connacht. Um, he's been out, he's been outstanding. Uh, Andrew Conway's gone to to Munster and you know left a real mark on and off the field. So it's not about that. It's it's about where I think Irish rugby's going. And I think this is going back. And and it used to frustrate me for frustrate me for the last five or six years is kind of how to try to take the parochialism out of it. How and that's actually something that we use as a strength. And maybe it's not maybe it's not as as important in. In, in American football or NBA or in the Premiership in England or soccer, which I've heard people use an example that Man United don't have a lot of players come, who come from Manchester. Um, but I do think parochialism is in some way quite unique to us as Irish people. And it, if harnessed correctly, can actually be the point of difference to, to hopefully you know, overachieve in terms of what's invested in, in terms of financial, et cetera, so, or numbers. So... I think we don't want to lose that, um, and at the moment, I just think it's too easy for for all the other provinces heads of academy to just basically go and, and, and try and pick off you know what Leinster the players who aren't making first choice for Leinster, and it is hard because there hasn't been many guys who've left um, who are first choice. You know, generally, if you're getting if you're getting a fair amount of game time in Leinster, you're happy to stay year on year. And it's only really the guys who are, I suppose, unhappy with the game time. And the problem for that is, effectively, if the other provinces are made up of 40% of the other provinces are Leinster light as such, right? So players who can't make the Leinster team, unless you're going to do an unbelievable job coaching them, um, and unless you're going to do an unbelievable job of turning them into tight group of men, as Dan said, um, you're probably not going to beat Leinster. I, I I don't I don't think because it's not as if Leinster don't do a good job of coaching them. So and it's not as if Leinster aren't a tight group. So there's probably not that margin for improvement. You know, it's like it's, I like race horse uh, horse racing. If you like, not many horses leave Woody Mullins or Aidan O'Brien and improve. You know, because <laughs> no, but it's the same. That's the, that's the level. So I think look at it. Short term, it's fine. It's great to have the, all these players still playing in Ireland rather than playing abroad. But I think. You know, I think it goes back to the idea that they're just franchises and game time is game time and it's all about the national jersey um, and it doesn't matter where you play as long as you're playing. <clears throat> I think that's not really going to help everybody else get better as well. And I think they're having a strong identity in each province and they do have it. Like It's not at that stage yet at all. Um, and it was interesting, I was doing some work with Darren Cave at the weekend and he felt Ian Henderson coming back as captain for Ulster was a big step forward because it's kind of, you know, 
Rory was obviously a very strong Ulster man and a very strong captain from that point of view. And Hendo, apparently, you know, um, I don't know him personally, but apparently he's very strong on that in the dressing room. And I think that's the key. If you're not going to have 80% of your players homegrown like Leinster have, I think the ones that are there that are homegrown have to really drive it. So I remember, like, I, I played for Connacht, obviously, twice, uh, two stints. You know, I'm a Leinster man, but, you know, likes of Eric Elwood, Barry Gavin, Merv Murphy, Nigel Carlin, etc. Willie Ryan, you know, they made sure that you knew you were playing for Connacht and the identity was was strong um, as, as a Connacht man. And and as Connacht, as outsiders coming in, you, you have to adapt to that and, you know, you, you buy into that. So that's the worry. That's the issue for me is, is that, you know, the senior players in these provinces need to really work hard to make sure that they keep that identity and, and we don't just become four franchises. And secondly, you know, the sooner the better that the the academies, um, the pressure comes on them to be to produce more players quicker. Um, well, then I think it'll even itself out a bit. And there'll still be room for the, the likes like Cone or like Sean Cronin and, and Andrew Conway um, to go somewhere um, and, you know, add to the team because they are good players. But the problem is when you're getting six or seven guys who aren't good enough at a time to be first choice for... For, for Leinster, it's unlikely they're going to come in and make a huge difference to you, or to, and that's where the problem is. Murray, come in there. Is that a fair point that if you have guys who aren't first choice at Leinster at a point in time, they move to, say, Ulster, Connacht, their Munster, that they won't go on to kind of flourish and potentially become better than they would have been at Leinster? Personally, I would have thought that if they are exposed to a little bit more game time, even a different way of training, they could go on to become better players conceivably. Yeah, I think the player themselves has a, a big say in that and, and how hard they work to fulfill what potential they had. Coaching is a huge part of it. And at the moment, it does appear that the, the best coaching is in, in Leinster and sure Lancaster is driving a huge amount of that. I think the point about the academies is is important and the RFU have a big role in that and, and their focus and their the onus they place on on the other provinces' academies getting closer to what Leinster's producing. They're not going to get to that level, in my opinion, because look at what's underneath the Leinster Academy now. You have the traditional Leinster schools that have always been strong, the likes of Michaels and, and Blackrock producing players. But now you have another six or eight schools who have really good programmes, who have really good resource to put into rugby and, and produce players who are that little bit further ahead. I, I think that's a huge advantage that Leinster have that simply isn't going to be matched elsewhere along with population we have to mention it um, but there can be a greater pressure and onus put on the provinces academies and and the provinces themselves going down a, a step further and, and filtering their knowledge through the province look at someone like Dan Soper he's the skills kicking coach with Ulster now he's a Kiwi but he thrived with it was Orbe AI in schools rugby in Ulster and there are some strong schools there that maybe with a bit more resource can produce even more players similar with Munster as well and and improving that level and bringing through the next Ian Hendersons is really essential I definitely agree like diversity is part of our lives now we don't just live in silos in our in our part of the country and it, it, we live in a diverse society and that's really important and, and that is part and parcel of professional sport as well but I think there is power in having 
guys like Henderson, Stuart McCloskey, obviously a really important Ulster man um, and really key cog of the, the team, and others who are developing, like Jacob Stockdale and James Hume, encouraging them, maybe Michael Lowry as well, to, to find their voice and, and drive things and and have that connection. I, and I think McFarlane himself would, would definitely recognise that, that there is an importance in having that element of the squad, or a strong element and a driving element of the squad, as well as players like let's take Sean Reedy and Rob Herring who spent their adulthood in Ulster um, and have had their professional careers here and created that bond in a, in a different way as well. So there's lots of different strands to it. Um, and I suppose Leinster are making everyone else look bad in comparison at the moment because they're so strong. Like the easy thing for the RFU to do rather than focus on the academies is is for David Newsom forward to go, you, you and you go to these three provinces. Leinster don't need this much depth. Because, like, realistically, as going back to Burns' point at the moment, you could make an argument that, you know, if you split Leinster's squad into two really strong first teams, that they're arguably the two best in, in the country. I mean, it's obviously a hypothetical situation, but that is, in my eyes, um, a, a quite a distinct possibility. So the easy thing for, for RFU to focus on is is taking Max Deegan and saying, listen, you got to go if you want to stay in the Ireland squad or, or player of that ilk. Um rather than putting that onus and pressure on, on the other provinces to, to get closer, I suppose. Yeah, sorry, just, Gavin, I hope I didn't... I'm not saying that you can't go somewhere else and improve, um, but I'm just saying the likelihood of of those six or seven players who, who leave Leinster um, becoming as good as the ones that stayed, it's, it's less likely than likely because they're not coming yeah. from an environment where things have been left to chance. You know what I mean? Uh, they're usually at their maximum as when they leave. So that, that's my point. And obviously someone like John Cooney is a brilliant example of someone who developed late, you know, went to Connacht um, and then went to Ulster and tried. So, of course, you're going to have examples of, of people where they got out of Leinster or got out of a, a dominant side and actually found, you know, found their form and, and found their potential. But like, I think, I mean... What I'm saying is that basically each academy needs to look at their demographics um, and work out an individual plan to try and maximise the talent that's there. And I, I'm just thinking like in England, England where there's multiple private schools, resources to beat the band, huge population. I mean, if you look at who the props for England for the next World Cup will likely be, it'll probably be Ellis Genge and Kyle Sinclair. Right? Look into their background. You know, they they aren't from traditional rugby rugby backgrounds at all and i mean and that's that they're in our, those those types of of profiles are are in ireland as well maybe they're playing gaelic sports gaelic games maybe they're maybe they're not playing anything maybe they're you know they're an mma but again if the need is great and the pressure is high enough and you really want to create homegrown players which should be the the goal for each academy they should be competitive with each other and obviously also being competitive to, to try and get as many players as you can into the into the senior team. Um, well, then I think they'll be a little bit more ruthless in how they go about it. And I think at the moment, it's it's just too easy just to go get, get Leinster players. It's just, uh, and I don't think it's helping them. Like they're not, uh, you know, uh, I don't think they're any closer to being, um, to being better than Leinster, which they all want to do, um, and there's huge effort and, and resource going into trying to make them better than Leinster. But I just think it's a flawed strategy to to, to just go and take you know the players who aren't getting regular game time and expect that your environment and your game plan is going to help you beat them, unless Leinster start messing up. 
Uh, for me, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I, I just don't see it. Another example would be, you know, Bandon, Bandon Grammar, you know, went out and got Reggie's son, right? Um, who's obviously, you know, coached to lose forwards for the last couple of years, you know, had been in Bordeaux. And, uh, you know, they, they were imaginative, creative. They, they got a really strong connection between the school and the club. And I'm not saying it's just down to him, but there's been a trickle of, of highly promising players coming from, from that region there. And again, you know, I'm not, and maybe that's just coincidence, but at least be creative and, and try and find ways of turning the tide. Yeah. I, I, that, that's my point. No, fair. And sorry, I, I, I misinterpreted your original point. That, that was my fault. Apologies. But uh, you've, you've certainly cleared it up to my mind there. Um, just a, a couple more things on this before we move on to talk about the breakdown. So the first thing I want to ask, and I don't know how simple or short the answer is, Murray, but you, you touch upon it there. The population issue is something we can't avoid. But where did this become a factor when and where or how in the sense that like if you go back to the 2000s half of Ireland's population lived in Leinster if you look at the population of the country now half of the population live in Leinster but in the 2000s Munster were a better team than Leinster produced better players than Leinster on a regular basis and now the reverse is true even more dramatically like where did that change happen how did it materialize do you know yeah well like rugby as a professional sport, and I'm not saying obviously the schools are professional, but it has filtered down as as the top level has got more professional. It's it's filtered down, um, and with a lot of the schools in Leinster, they have as I, as I mentioned the resource to probably implement a lot of the stuff. And um, some of the programs are just remarkable, really. Like somewhere like St Michael's is so professional in how they approach the game and and coach players and work on all aspects of their game. So that's probably developed along with. The top level I, I think um I, I think you spend a lot of time digging into that and looking at how schools even are marketing themselves to parents and uh, a good sports program is attractive as well I think to to a lot of people in that sense um but yeah I, I mean it is the it is the big advantage when I look down below the academies that there are a number of almost feeder academies um topping up Leinster and Bernard uh one last one on this I'll ask you like all right, again, I suppose I'm not sure if it's a question or just a, a statement or amusing, but from Leinster's point of view, this is a balls as well. And like, firstly, they're losing players they don't want to lose. We've seen that now happen fairly regularly over the last couple of years where Leo Cullen will be genuinely pissed off that he's lost to Roman Salanoa or whoever. But also you can, you can already start to feel the narrative uh, migrate a little bit towards people talking about Leinster's dominance being problematic, even though they haven't been dominant to the extent they are now for long enough, I feel, uh, in order for that conversation to take place. But it is going to take place. I think it's inevitable we kind of head down a, a path where they're discussed in a similar context to the one in which the Dublin Gaelic footballers are discussed, where they are so dominant and... Uh, their dominance is insurmountable to the point that it, it might actually be bad for the game. That like that conversation will happen, I guarantee you. And also, that's going to be an absolute pain in the hole for Leinster fans, for Leinster, where they're thinking like, well, how is this our fault? You know, like, we're, we, we might be the best team in, certainly in the Pro 14, maybe at the end of this season, the best team in Europe. But, but why are we being talked about as if that's a bad thing, if that makes sense? Yeah, but I think if you're setting out, like... Internally, I don't think that'll be a massive issue for the players. They'll feel that, um, 
they've done their job then because they obviously know that they have the resources and the talent pool to to probably be the most dominant side in in the Pro 14 for sure and to be there thereabouts every year in, in Europe. I think that's the minimum now. So I don't look at it. I think they'll be getting enough enjoyment out of winning games and, and winning trophies, not to worry about the uh, the backlash or the perceived criticism of it. That's um, that's not really that's probably a, a compliment rather than a, a credit. But maybe some of the fans might get annoyed about it. I suppose the most important thing, and I think you can get it from listening to Leo recently, is they just want to be left alone and be allowed run their own ship really and um, not be not have pressure from stakeholders to to move players. I think that's the that's the key. I think they feel that they do a pretty good job giving everybody game time. They probably feel, and it's probably justified at the moment, that you can actually get capped for Ireland without being first choice for Leinster, um, which is a massive, a, a massive change up in how things used to be. You know, realistically, before, if you wanted to play for Ireland, you kind of had to be first choice in one of the other provinces. Mm-hmm. Sorry, one of the provinces. Um, whereas now we've seen players who are back up for Leinster um, you know, get capped or, or or even start sometimes, and uh, and that's obviously harder than for Johan Van Gran, Frandy Friend, or Dan McFarland when they're having a, a conversation with you know a top level Leinster player. You know, so um, a guy who's already who's who's currently in the in the national team to say, look at you know realistically, if you want to play for Ireland, um, you're probably better served coming coming to us. Um, when that's not the case anymore. It's very difficult to recruit those top end guys, and then you're maybe relying on on IRFU pressure um, to move players. And I think that's what Leinster, without saying it directly, um, I would guess are maybe angling that a little bit. That um, you know that they feel that they can make a good case for themselves with players when it comes to recruitment through contract value plus obviously the environment and the chance to. To be successful and stay in your home province, uh, you know, play for your own province, and then um, what's making it difficult for them is external pressure. Interesting. I think we'll be coming back to that one a few times in the future. We briefly interrupt this rugby broadcast with a message from me, Gavin Cooney. If you're enjoying this show, you should check out the suite of podcasts that come with a 42's membership package. These include Murray's Rugby Weekly Extra and also Behind the Lines, where we chat to sports writers about their careers, along with their favourite pieces of writing. We have an archive of more than 40 guests at this point, including Ryan Thompson. I mean, I just made an Excel spreadsheet and tried to account for every single day of his life in the 10 years between uh, Earl dying and that Thanksgiving with the golf club and the fire hydrant. Maliki Clerkin. A good idea writes itself. No, it doesn't. No, that's wrong. It doesn't write itself, but it gets you into the position where you can do the thing you're good at. And Graham Hunter, who told us of how he once faced off against a young Brian O'Driscoll. A young O'Driscoll played for uh, for Blackrock. I know this because he, yeah. he, hand, he put a hand off to me right in my face. I had no idea you could... Fuck's sake, man. This is, how can this be in the rules? Well, I did when I woke up. So come join us at members.the42.ie. And now back to Murray and, as he sadly referred to around the office, the OG Gavin. Uh, an email received by Murray Kinsler from... Connor, 
I would love to hear some thoughts on the Rook Laws now that we have had a consistent run of games. Brackets, you probably have a perspective of how it's being applied across a number of leagues too. Close brackets. I personally advocated, or, you know, screamed at the television for the actual rules to just be enforced for the last number of years. That seemed like the solution to me. I was pretty happy when that was finally proposed this year. However, now that it has been put into action, I'm not so sure. Do you think the new approach is working, or do you think that it is not working yet, but that it has the potential to change players' behaviour gradually? I'm open to the latter argument, but it increasingly seems to me that this solution is not working. Jackalers are being disproportionately rewarded, killing any flow and attack, and I, fin- and I find some of the not rolling away penalties to be silly. Would love to hear your thoughts this week, but listen, I'm sure you get many requests. All the best, Connor. We do get many requests, Connor, but this was the best request, I thought, this week. Murray, you can take it from here. It was an email directed to yourself, but it's actually, in fairness to Connor, a topic that's come up from uh well it's been raised by a lot of the 42 members in the whatsapp group a lot of people uh, who do get in contact with the show and i've meant to come around to it many times now today felt like a good time um wh- what did you make of that uh, and what is your answer to it yeah it's a fascinating subject and it has been a big area of the restart of rugby all around actually world rugby have done some study on it um and the stats are kind of just filtering out they focus on super rugby aotearoa super rugby au and the gallagher premiership but Essentially, what we're seeing is what what it looks like to to our eyes. More rock penalties. So in Super Rugby Aotearoa, it's gone from 9 up to 11. In Australia, it's gone from 7 up to 10. And in the Premiership, it's gone from 6 up to 13. You're seeing the attacking team being penalised more frequently than before. So that's obviously a lot of those holding on penalties are, are contributing to that. Those specific jackal penalties have gone up indeed. it's In the Premiership, it's gone from an average of 2 before the kind of restart to 5 now. Um, and in Super OB row, you're getting an extra one every game on, on average as well. But also, rolling away penalties are up, side entry penalties are up, and off feet as well, the, the diving, not driving that they're looking for. It is really interesting that the ruck speed in general is up, or sorry, is quicker rather. Um, so that's dropped. So ro- the ruck speed in, in New Zealand is almost 0.4 seconds quicker, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but... It makes a big difference. In the Premiership, it's 0.2 seconds. Not a huge change in Australia. And it'd be fascinating to see if Guinness Pro 14 stats say similar. I suppose the concern with this is, with the jackal penalties, in the Premiership, we're seeing a lot more line-outs and mauls now as a result because those penalties are being kicked kicked to touch. So you've gone from an average of 25 line-outs game up to 31 now. And I think some people are frustrated with that and concerned that the look of the game is going to be very set-piece to set-piece. Um, like for me the jackal thing I don't think they're being rewarded disproportionately I think they're being rewarded as they should have been before the best thing is that we don't hear he didn't survive the clean out anymore if they get a clear lift the jackal if they're legal if they're in a good position they're earning that penalty um, without having to withstand a battering or a potential side entry or someone trying to take out their knee uh, and the danger that comes with that so for me that's a positive and jackals being in good positions and, and that contest for the ball is if they're lifting the ball, they're, they're getting that penalty, which which I think is a good thing. So essentially attacking teams, they need to f- fix their attacking breakdown and be earlier there as well. Um, one little thought I had actually, I don't know, I've never seen, I don't think, a sin bin or a yellow card for someone holding the ball on the ground. So when the jackal gets over them and they don't release the ball. But I mean, that's like clearly br- breaking the laws of the game. And if we get repeated re- infringements... <laughs> 
why not yellow card a team like if there's a collective if there's a bunch of them three jackal penalties where they're not releasing the ball give them a warning next one players sin bin because that's that leads to the consequences they want to see they want to see clean turnovers in the game world rugby they want the jackals making turnovers without just winning a penalty but actually winning the ball and then you get the turnover attack and the game is a bit more broken up and and obviously that's exciting to watch so that would be good to see i think the the cleaner turnovers um as well as that just on the rolling away one uh, from what i understand epcr sent out a directive this week to remind referees that we don't want to see that trapping or holding players in obviously we saw leinster do it a couple of times against munster i think larmer and low um so that's been a reminder to referees to just penalize that straight away if we see that kind of cynical play um but it's been a, a fascinating area and it is still i suppose early in this but if we go this way and then we say, okay, this isn't working, let's go back to what we had, I think you just go back to the dangerous clearouts and Jackals getting pulverised, I suppose, um, and not rewarded for getting into decent positions. Bernard, what's your opinion on it? Yeah, I think that definitely it's safer. I mean, and the more they pick up those side entries, the better. I, I don't think World Rugby expected this to play out as it has with more set piece, more stoppages in the game. And I think the solution to it is when a referee sees the a jackler in a good position, potentially call use it. Okay. And the the advantage or the what they've won is the ball back. They haven't won the ultimate prize, which is obviously a penalty, but they have the chaotic and transitional attack. And that's what they wanted. That's what they originally wanted with it. So um what's happened is the jacklers have got in position and just locked on the ball as they would have in the old days and tried to survive the clear out. Um, and then referees are given a penalty. But I think like they have at the back of a mall that's not going forward or, or a scrum that's collapsed, if the referee called use it, um, there's a chance to play the turnover. And only if the, the ball carrier refuses to release the ball. So it's cynical play. So if he holds on for that extra second, that then it becomes a full arm penalty. Um, I think that could be a solution to it. I, I don't want, I don't think what we need is more penalties and more, more line outs. Um, you know, and I definitely think that the games, the breakdown laws were, were reinforced this way with the, um, for, with a view to obviously making it safer, first of all, but also creating more turnovers. And as I said, transitional attack opportunities. So potentially that's something they can look at. I think, you know, Murray said the referees have been told to penalise that negative play where the attacking team trapped the the defender. In, in you know, it's it's an old tactic now of trapping them with your legs, and some teams have bought penalties through that. And then obviously other referees have been cute about that and realised uh, and and said, "Oh, you're you're trapping them there." So then the ball becomes slow, and uh, obviously as Murray said against Munster, Leinster, Leinster held on to the jersey of the tackler. Um, you know, a penalty against the attacking team there would be a complete game changer and um, it would be really interesting to see how, how coaches and players adapt to that. The the thing, I suppose, the worry as well as having that lack of flow and load lineouts and load of malls, which we seem to have certainly in the Premiership anyway, is that some coaches may go, right, attacking sides are being penalised far more frequently here and that's what the data says. Let's just not try to attack with ball in hand as much and, and let's kick a hell of a lot more obviously kicking has to be part of the game and can be a really positive part of the game but you don't want teams just trying to exchange the ball and wait for a set piece obviously that we're going to end up with a, a pretty terrible product to, to watch then so 
yeah, I, I think it'll, it'll be fascinating to see how over a longer period of time this changes. It is still early enough days, but I think just seeing cleaner turnovers, as Bernard mentions there, getting the, the ball used in that situation is, is really important um, and definitely one to watch as we go forward. Boys, top stuff as always. You know the clock is deep in the red when phones start to ring sometime around one o'clock, so I better let you go. <clears throat> but much appreciated as always Murray and Bernard and to all of you as well thank you to Connor for your email thank you to everybody who sent questions we didn't get around to all of them naturally enough but uh, please keep doing it and we'll get to you eventually for sure Monday Murray will be back with Owen Toolan for Rugby Weekly Extra that's exclusive to the 42 members members.the42.ie if you want to sign up to listen to that as well as all of the other podcasts and offerings that come with the 42 membership and we'll be back next Thursday in our usual slot otherwise so until either Monday or Thursday mind yourselves take it easy I don't think we've met before but I'm the referee on this field if you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> it is Tommy Ball! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass, and